Cell is the leading distributor of radiotherapy patient positioning equipment and physics QA products in the UK and Ireland, supplying both the NHS and private sector. As always, please do not hesitate to get in touch to discuss your product and service requirements with our friendly and knowledgeable account specialists, as and when required. We are all from a radiotherapy background and we are more than happy to chat about the clinical benefits and workflows of all of our products. Please go to our website at www.osl.uk.com or if you would like to speak to us, please call 01743 462 694. Hi, my name is Laura and I work at Convensis as a Partnerships Manager. Join us at the NHS Oncology Conference on the 6th of June 2023 in Manchester. We will open the debate on how the NHS is planning to lean on new models of delivery and innovation to help manage the current treatment backlogs and improve outcomes on a national scale. All tickets are free for the NHS to attend. To register for your free ticket, visit convensis.co.uk. everyone and welcome to Mad Chat, the multi-award winning first therapeutic radiographer-led oncology podcast. Welcome to podcast number 91. My name's Joe McNamara and I'm joined by fellow host Naman Joelka Anderson. Hi everyone. So a big thank you to our last guest, Claire Hutton, who talked about her role as a department manager. If you haven't yet had a chance, please do go and take a listen. So we're really pleased to introduce our guest, Natalie Woodward, who will be talking about her experience of cancer and patient advocacy. Welcome, Natalie. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. Oh, we've we've been really excited about having you on, largely because um, I kind of stalk you a little bit on Instagram, um, and I'm all, always drawn to your post because um, you kind of share everything, don't you? Yeah, I waffle on, don't I? <laughs> <laughs> so um, you recently featured with Claire Taylor, who we actually had um, on the podcast a few weeks ago. So do you want to kind of tell us a little bit about yourself and your experience of cancer? Yeah, so I was diagnosed with cancer um, back in 2019, so I was 36. Um, it was cancer in my bowel, so I had um, tumour, the tumours were Pretty much, I think there were two of them. They were pretty much filling my pelvis. So they were touching basically everything in my pelvis. Um, growing into my spine, so it, it, it was inoperable and advanced. So, um, yeah, that was my diagnosis. So obviously it was inoperable. So my first port of call was um, the chemo radiation in the hope that it would shrink it enough to be operable. But, yeah, so I was 36, very fit healthy I was a dancer I taught dance um so yeah a bit of a shock actually (laughs) how's it affected your life so for me it affected my life I think there's so many levels how it affects you I think it is very different I'm not saying better or worse just very different getting it as a younger adult um especially a woman who has not yet had children so for me um there are so many things that it's affected it's affected my I guess my body image self-esteem um I've had to have a pretty massive surgery following my chemo radiation so I had two years of treatment really and it, it affects you mentally it affects you physically but it also affects your future so for me, obviously, now I'm left with a permanent stoma. Um, I had 
part, most of my vagina removed and reconstructed, um, which obviously has its own implications. And for me, probably the biggest sadness is um, not being able to be a mother. So I think these are the things that getting cancer when you're younger, it's quite isolating because you're watching everyone else carry on with their lives and yours is paused and you don't know whether it you're ever going to get better especially like with an inoperable and advanced diagnosis you're kind of thinking I don't even know if I'm going to get to that point like am I stupid for even thinking about oh I'm sad that I'm not going to be a mum because obviously the prognosis is so bad um so yeah I think there are so many layers to it but for me it I think it's just changed my entire life in an in every way there's nothing that it hasn't affected, I don't think. And some things have been positive. Some things for me, it's been my biggest teacher, I guess, in my life, having cancer. And I've definitely um, found that some things have changed for the better. Um, but there are also there's a lot of loss and sadness as well. How old were you when you were diagnosed and did you have any symptoms? So I was 36 when I was diagnosed. I think I... W- probably had symptoms for the year leading up to my diagnosis so obviously being in my 30s mid 30s I didn't think even when I was going for my colonoscopy there's not not at any point did I think that it was cancer I thought maybe Crohn's or colitis so I had a lot of I guess what people would class as IBS symptoms um I was going to the doctors on and off with that um bloating when I ate and then towards the end maybe a couple of months three months before diagnosis I lost a lot of weight without trying and obviously I was thinking well this is fabulous like why well, don't know what's going on but yeah great and then I started to feel very unwell and very tired all the time and I started to get this really persistent pain in my lower back um, I also felt this, like, I'm just going to be honest, because this is what, what happened to me. Um, I felt something inside my vagina. I didn't know what it was. And I was even Googling, like, can you have a bone inside your vagina? I was, like, Googling this stuff, like, what is this hard thing in there? And then, obviously, I um, was started to, I wasn't able to go to the toilet at all. So I'd be in the toilet for hours and hours and trying to go to the toilet, passing out with the pain. So in the end, I was just so ill and in so much pain that I had to be taken seriously. It wasn't IBS. It wasn't, oh, let's take this out of your diet and see if that works. It was like, there's something really wrong here. So yeah, I had, I had, I guess, subtle symptoms at first, but the last couple of months I was in excruciating pain and just unable to eat and go to the toilet, so. And did you present in A&E or did you go through your GP for that referral? Um, So I went to my GP who put me on a two-week referral, but in the meantime, the pain got so bad, I ended up going into A&E and obviously the pain in my lower back was this tumours growing into my spine and the thing that I felt in my vagina was the tumour growing through my vaginal wall. So obviously I didn't know that at the time. (laughs) Um, 
But yeah, I ended up just to help me with the pain management. I I was in an, it, the pain where it was going into my spinal nerves. Nothing touched it. Actually, nothing touched it. Probably until the radiation started to work for me, and that was the first relief I had in you know maybe ten weeks. You said you could obviously feel it coming inside your vagina. Were you sexually active at that point as well? And was that a factor in kind of finding out? So not really. I found out because I use menstrual cups. And so actually my periods stopped maybe two months before diagnosis. Um, but the period before they stopped, that's when I felt like there's something, the the menstrual cup wasn't going in. And... I obviously had I I had a, a feel around I guess so I was like what's going on here um uh, I wasn't at the at the time I just it wasn't feeling right I wasn't feeling right so I don't really think that I can't remember having any sort of sex at that time um just because there was so much going on I was really wasn't feeling right um but it was mainly my last period the last period I actually ever had look you know in retrospect that that was the last one and that's when I I felt that I guess the tumour in there. So Natalie can you tell us a little bit about your treatment and kind of how how you coped with treatment? Yeah so I was actually thrilled to start chemo radiation I had a really complicated diagnosis so they found they diagnosed me and then they saw on one of the scans that there was actually a channel in between the humongous tumor so they realized it was two tumors so two primaries and I then had to go through the whole process again because they thought it was a different type of cancer so they thought one was adenocarcinoma they thought the other one was squamous so they were like we're not sure how we're going to treat this if it's two different ones so I had to go through the whole process again which added a lot a lot of time on um and luckily it was the same cancer and because of this like lengthened diagnosis and that I was so ill at this point a massive node popped out of my groin like a golf ball and that's one of the reasons why I didn't end up having any eggs harvested because we just couldn't add that time on um, to the process. So I, I was so unwell. I think I was just like, please get me on some treatment as soon as possible. I felt like, it sounds very dramatic, but I felt like my body was just shutting down. I was so unwell. So for me, I was excited to start treatment. I couldn't wait. And I remember I wasn't running, I didn't have that energy, but I remember being very happy to walk into that chemo ward. I had chemo radiation at the same time, so I was had my pump attached and then I went to um, meet my team. Well, I'd met them for the radiation, uh, sorry, the planning for the radiation and... Um, yeah, I think I was just at that point, because this was like the first phase of my cancer treatment. It went on long after this. But um, yeah, I think for that first, but I was just really eager to start and to start to feel better. Did you know much about radiotherapy before you had it? I didn't know loads. My mum had breast cancer before me, um, a couple of years before, no, maybe more, 
couple of years before or something. So um, I knew about it from the point of view of my mum going through it. Um, but obviously it was a different body, body area. And that obviously massively impacts your treatment and side effects and things like that. So I guess I knew it was painless, as in when you're laying there. But I knew that sometimes the after effects are afterwards. Um, but I did, wouldn't say I knew a lot. I didn't know... I didn't know how important... So for me, I wouldn't be here without my radiation. I wouldn't be here at all. It was the radiation that shrank my tumours away. So I think that my oncologist described it as the chemotherapy weakens it and then the radiation will like punch it kind of thing and destroy it. So I, my, for me and my cancer, I know that it was absolutely imperative. Like it, it's, it was hard, <laughs> but it's the thing I'm really grateful for because I, I wouldn't have even been close to having an operation without it. Um, so yeah, I didn't know that much about it at the time, but I felt like I was in good hands, so I didn't necessarily ask too many questions at the time. Obviously the surgery that you talked about is, I always get this word wrong, so I think it's pelvic extenuation. Oh so, yeah. But could you talk us through a little bit about that? Yeah, so I had a pelvic extenuation, and um, that is... <laughs> I, so yeah, so I had my first year chemo radiation, went really well, better than we expected, but my cancer basically started growing back really, really quickly. So because it basically, my tumours were touching everything in my pelvis except for my bladder, the only way that we could deal with my cancer was to remove everything that the tumours touched. So every pelvic extenuation is really different, depends on your cancer, how big it is, how many things it was touching, it depends like cervical cancer at the front, they tend to have the bottom part left alone and etc etc. So for mine they removed my fallopian tubes, ovaries, fallopian tubes, uterus, cervix, vagina, rectum, anus and they removed part of my spine my sacral spine, I think there was like four spinal nerves, um, my left piriformis, my left pelvic sidewall, and my surgery was during the pandemic, just to put the cherry on the cake. Um, so there was a, quite a delay um, in my surgery happening. So I had to go back on chemotherapy, second line of chemo. Um, and even though I was on that, in that time it had spread to my left ureter, so I had to have, I was really lucky I kept my bladder, but I had to have um, a left ureterectomy, ureterectomy, I think that's how you say it. And then they had to re-implant the healthy ureter into my bladder. So my bladder was operated on cut. So yeah, it was a mad operation, really extensive, 12 hours, I think. I think there were multiple surgeons and obviously, yeah, in the height of the pandemic. So no visitors. I just can't get over how extensive that surgery is. Did you know it was going to be that extensive? You know, when you're signing that consent form, did that consent process take quite a while because of just going through absolutely everything with you? 
Yeah, do you know what? It was I when I it was really weird. So I'd never heard of it before. Didn't even know something like that was possible. And literally a couple of weeks before I was at this cancer party, um, like a charity thing, and I met this girl who told me about this operation she'd had and she told me about it. And I remember going home to my partner and going, Oh my god, I feel so lucky you should hear what this girl's had to have and then two weeks later I was being told I needed it so I already had a bit of an idea I was absolutely devastated devastated I I I kind of just I remember saying in that instant like I wish you'd never saved me in the first place and I feel so bad for saying that now but that was my gut reaction to hearing what I needed because as, as I said earlier, there's so many layers to it. Like it was basically saying goodbye to being a mother, permanent stoma, a part of my spine. I was likely to have foot drop or drop foot, whatever you call it, on the left side. Well, obviously that as as a dancer, that was a big thing. There were so many layers to it. Having your vagina, I say I had like most of it removed, so like the um, the back part of it, and then they removed. They took my right buttock to rebuild the underneath me so I've also got like a flat side on my bottom so yeah I was devastated um but what helped me is I went in for a meeting and Claire who you were talking about earlier Claire Taylor she was there and the surgeon and the consultant radiologist ran me through my scans and that was the most helpful brilliant thing they could have done because I then understood why they needed to cut so much out of me they showed me the shadow on everything they showed me everything that my tumor had touched they showed me my my initial scan and it was really they made it really clear to me because as as a non-medical person you're like why are they cutting so much out of me and they helped me understand so that was great that really helped me and I think that then the decision was up to me, you know, I didn't have to have it, and not everyone does have it, a lot of people don't have that surgery, they don't want to live like that afterwards, but um, yeah, I, I fully was aware on paper what it was, but nothing really can prepare you for, <laughs> for what you're going to wake up to. <laughs> Did they kind of tell you about the recovery time afterwards, and what was the recovery time? Yeah, so they can, again, give you a rough idea. Usually it can be around three weeks. Like, I guess the average is around three weeks. Um, I had, I think, nearly a month in hospital to begin with, and I was discharged, and then I was blue-lighted back in the same day with sepsis. (laughs) Um, and then I had a really complicated recovery. So I would say the first six months I was just constantly being readmitted. I had urosepsis, had to have a drain pushed through my bottom cheek into my pelvic cavity um, using a CT machine so that it could drain off the pelvic collection. I had hydronephrosis on my left kidney, so I had a catheter in for quite a while. Um... I was walking on frames for a while, then graduated to crutches, then a a walking stick. So I'm really, really, really lucky. I think due to the skill of my surgeon's hands, I can 
I have like perfect use of my left foot, a weakness on my left side, um, and a bit of instability, but you now I can use my foot. So yeah, that, um, really, really grateful for that. But yeah, it was a really complex and complicated and difficult recovery. Um, but after that initial six months, I, I've done, I feel like I've done really well. So <laughs> really well, really, really well. And honestly, Natty, I, I would imagine that you probably saw almost every healthcare professional that works in oncology through your pathway with such a complex rehabilitation. I, you know, did you, did you kind of notice how many people were inputting into your care? Yeah, I did. And I felt really, um, it was quite overwhelming. You feel like I always reflected on how much work has gone into keeping me alive. Like I'm so really grateful doesn't really cut it. But yeah, like every single person, every single person. And for me doing it during the pandemic, my healthcare team were my family. I couldn't have my family with me. So they were, they became even more important. And I think I speak for everyone going through it during the pandemic. My medical team were, they saw everything. They saw things that my fiance didn't see, that my mum didn't see. They saw everything. So they, yeah, I did notice them all and it was very overwhelming and I just felt the love really, you know. Must have been, yeah, terrifying going through that and I know lots of people who've worked through the pandemic in healthcare having to kind of be that go-between through the phone or, you know, whatever, FaceTime to help kind of people connect. Um, Yeah, it must have been terrifying. Yeah, it was. It was funny how many laughs I had, though, really weirdly. You, I think it's, I think that's part of my way through a lot of things is to try and have a laugh. There are obviously some things that aren't funny. Um, but like, there were so many really nice moments in my recovery. Like, I did ballet with my physio and just my HCA Mike he was so funny like he'd come in every day he bought me little things he bought me this um pillow for in between my knees he bought me a little clamp for my um table so I because I couldn't really I had to be rolled from side to side for the first few days so I couldn't really hold a phone so he bought me something to hold my phone like it was just so wonderful at the worst time in my life obviously there were moments that were terrifying I remember waking up in intensive care and obviously I the first thing I looked down did I have one or two bags <laughs> I was like please let me just have one that's enough and then I just remember thinking oh I'm not going to see anyone I'm not going to see anyone none of my friends my family no, no one but the nurse that was with me in intensive care like I don't think I even dwelled on it for very long because she was so lovely and I just felt very those scary moments were really quickly um, disappeared by how lovely my care was. UKIO conference is back June 2023 in Liverpool for three days and is fully refreshed to respond to feedback from delegates to reflect the world we're living in today. Prices are lower than ever and start at £75 to access the full Congress and all content. 
They've changed the program to focus on specialists for the generalist and top tips content rather than highly specialised topics from previous congresses. There are more sessions on service optimization, education and workforce. Something that we love is research and it's at the heart of the program. There's more proffered papers, sessions to present your work, expert sessions on refining research proposals and power pitches and a dedicated research hub. If all of that isn't enough, there are themed hubs in the exhibition on service delivery, clinical case studies and innovation in action, along with more hands-on and technical workshops. Industry partners have added valuable education content on their stands too. You can also check out CPD outside of the programme in case of the day activities and view posters. There are streams aimed specifically at masterclasses for trainees, making UKIO the place to come for value for money exam prep, along with sessions throughout the programme aimed at students. The programme is available to view at www.ukio.org.uk, where you can also register and there are more than 100 plus sessions to choose from. Make sure you use the code RADCHAT25 on the booking page. And don't forget to come and check us out in our RADCHAT pod box. See you on the 5th to the 7th of June 2023 at ACC in Liverpool. Obviously the, the treatments that anybody receives, and obviously what you've had, there are physical and mental kind of scars that happen. You're quite open and honest on social media about body image. I know some patients that I see, they talk about grieving about their previous body. Is that Does that statement sort of resonate with you as well? Yeah, definitely. It's mine's, Mine has been a really, I guess, big, pro, uh, long process. It's still ongoing. There are still days where I wouldn't say I hate myself because I'm... I do feel proud now of what I've gone through. Sometimes I think, oh, God, how have I ended up like this? Um, Not in a self-pitying way, just, like, it's hard to believe, really. Um, Yeah, it's been a journey. And I think because before I was a dancer, and obviously your body is, like, your tool, and obviously your weight and what you look like is a thing... Um, it's a thing for I guess all of us but um, yeah it was like going from one extreme to the other but it's really weird because I don't think I appreciated my body before (laughs) all this happened and looking back I always think I wish I had (laughs) I wish I had Um, but hindsight's a wonderful thing I think it's really weird because you grow to love your body in a completely different way like rather than basing it on what you look like it's more like well it's not what I want it to look like, but look what it's got through. Like my, what my body has survived and is now able to do. I think for me, the biggest shock has been my quality of life. Cause I thought my quality of life would be so poor. Is it worth, is it worth surviving if you can't really live? But I do pretty much everything I want to do. Some of it's painful, but you know, it, it is what it is. I, join in with everything I go swimming I go in the sea like I'm really amazed at how much my body can do now after going through all that so yeah you kind of find a different appreciation for it that's not to say that like there are some days I do feel down <laughs> and I'm like oh I don't want to have a stoma and yeah I guess around my friends, my non-cancer friends who have just got their normal young bodies, I have felt a little bit of an outsider, but 
yeah, it's a journey for sure. And I'm sure there'll be days going forward where I have a down day and feel disgusting. <laughs> but I mainly now have got this far out of my surgery that I do just feel thankful to be here. And that's, I'm sure, really reassuring for other patients who might be going through this process, um, you know, not being aware of maybe how it's going to impact quality of life and being quite worried about kind of accepting the new normal. It's something that we often talk about on the podcast, but it can be really challenging. So it's amazing that you're able to do that. How do you do it? So I'm just thinking for someone who's lying in bed at the moment, who's just like, I've been through all of this. And I'm listening to Natalie on the podcast and she sounds like she's thriving. You know, she's grasping all these opportunities, but I'm not feeling like that. What would you say to them? I will say to you that I haven't always felt like this. I felt really weirdly when I first had my surgery, I felt fine, obviously in pain and whatnot, but mentally really strong. And there was a massive delayed reaction for me. I was ploughing on and my surgeon said this to me. He said, I think because I was always so cheerful when he came in, he was probably thinking, oh my God. But he did say in a nice way, like, just be aware that this might, it might hit you at some point what's happened to you. And he was absolutely right because mine was a really delayed reaction. I think it was when I stopped with all the hospital admissions and I was at home and I realised this is my life now. This isn't something that's going to change and get better. This is what I'm left with. And you're going back into the real world again. You're starting to see your friends who haven't gone through this, your friends who are announcing their pregnancies and having their babies and you feel really left behind. And all of a sudden you're in the real world. You're not being looked after by a team of amazing people who are all there for you. And that's when it hit me. And I went through a really dark time. Um, But always, for me, is allowing yourself to feel those feelings, not saying that not not labelling them as bad or good. They're just feelings. They're not you. They're something that will move through you and you'll move on. Um, And that's what helped me is not to resist it. And also for me, I've made friends when I was diagnosed with lots of other stage four cancer patients who I had to say goodbye to along the way. And for me, on my hard days, I think however hard this is, this is an option that they didn't get. It's like the ultimate perspective. It's not, that doesn't mean that your struggles aren't valid. It just puts it into perspective for me personally that this is a hard option, really hard option, and it's a hard road some days. However, it's a chance that some of my friends didn't get. And I'm here living and breathing and feeling it all, the sadness, the happiness, the joy, the gratitude. That means I'm alive to feel it all. I don't expect life to be all happiness, but all of it means that I'm here and I kind of feel like I owe it to them. To, yeah, have a bad day. That's fine. But just don't sit in it. Life's too short. We've, we've fought so hard to keep our lives. I don't want to waste time dwelling on the sadness you just have to keep getting up and moving forward it's an incredibly powerful perspective i think on everything 
I'm sure anybody listening, you can take that away in any snippet of life and yeah, hold it quite close to your heart. You talked about the the wonderful healthcare professionals. Um, who was supporting you outside of a healthcare profession? So at home, friends, family, when you're having a dark day and talking to yourself wasn't enough? So I have one of the things about Instagram is sharing on there. And like I obviously have shared a lot of my journey, not all of it by any stretch of the imagination. I mean, I am a sharer for sure, but I, there's a lot of stuff I haven't. But what I have had through my Instagram is making a community of friends, a group of friends who I can share everything with. And they're having similar journeys. So you don't have to, you know, you know that there's no judgment. You can send each other. Like I always say to Chris, when I die, please just burn my phone because some of the pictures on the WhatsApp chats, nobody needs to see. (laughs) Body parts. (laughs) Like it's just, oh my gosh. But those friends for me were, obviously I'm so lucky. I have the most supportive partner. He's a lot younger than me and he's seen some horrendous things and he's stuck with me. And it's really impacted him as well. I can't be a mum. He can't be a dad. Like, I've had my vagina cut out and then made out of my bum cheek. Like, it's stuff that impacts him as well. He's been incredible. I've got an amazing family. But I think as well what's been the real backbone of my support were people going through something similar. My stage four friends who I met through Instagram and I... I just wouldn't, I wouldn't have got through through some of the days without them. And likewise, when they're having bad days, we don't all have bad days on the same day. So we can pull each other through and we know that there's no judgment, however bad you feel. Because there have been days where I think, I don't know if this was worth it because I've been in so much pain. And I do live in chronic pain and I do live with bags and... UTIs, I self-catheterize, I've got a catheter in at the moment because my bladder was a bit dodgy the other week, so yeah, it's not easy, but I I just feel so grateful, I don't know what possessed me, but to put my account on Instagram, because the friendships I've made through that have been, have helped me get through some days I I didn't know how I was going to get through. (laughs) If you went back, Natalie, would you have cancer? Good question. Um, I wish I'd caught my cancer early. I think cancer's been a really good teacher for me in so many ways. I was such a mug before, like I was such a pushover, people pleaser. I had no... I gave all my energy to everyone else and none to myself. And I think I've learned so much from having cancer. For me, I just wish I caught it earlier so that I didn't have to go through such an extreme operation or in a way I wish I'd maybe had my babies earlier or something like that. But I think I don't, it's a really weird thing to say, but I I feel like this is what was supposed to happen to me. This is my path and I can't, I never regret anything because if I changed anything it wouldn't have led me to where I am today and I wouldn't have met the people that I've met so for me cancer's become a really important part of my life and I weirdly am 
really grateful for it in a lot of ways. Um, so no, I, I don't think I don't think I'd change anything. And I think especially with my operation as well, when I was having it, no one was talking about this operation. I met one girl who'd had it. And since having it, I've been able to hopefully show some people that don't want to have this surgery that there is a life after it. And maybe that's part of my purpose of surviving cancer, late stage cancer, is to give other people the confidence to go, oh, my life isn't going to be a complete, you know, shambles. This girl's out there living her life, going on holidays, swimming in the sea. I hope that that is the case for, for some people and maybe that's the reason why I had to go through this. Not to give myself too much credit, by the way, I'm just trying to, like, make sense of it. <laughs> so, Natalie, you did mention about, obviously being infertile not now being able to have a baby and as someone who's kind of been there um I just know how sometimes that can really occupy thoughts and sometimes it can just take over your whole life it's like you never see pregnant women and then all of a sudden you know you can't have children and you it's like everyone is pregnant but you how do you cope with that and what advice would you give to kind of patients but also maybe even healthcare professionals in managing the expectations for cancer patients because in my experience we may get you to sign the consent forms we may talk to you about it but I don't think anyone ever really prepares you for how you feel when you are not able to have a child. No it's a really tricky one because obviously at the time you're consenting to things all you're all you're thinking about is a disease you want to get rid of that disease and you want to get that under control so you will literally say yes to anything at that point personally I'm like yeah do it do what you need to do because the cancer is the number one thing and it's not until I think again like a delayed thing where you realize afterwards truly what it means to oh well your pelvic radiation will probably put you into menopause okay that's fine do it but then when it's actually happened and you finish your course of radiation and you're left with the aftermath I think that's when it hits you and I think that's when the support is probably needed because explaining something is fine and it's necessary but I think it's like the support and you realize for me after treatment is when I felt like I needed the support or I needed I guess someone to talk to or I guess a bit like a bit of counseling or something like that because with the with the fertility thing you cannot escape it as a as a young woman you can't escape it people will ask you how many times I've been asked have you got children why not or I've had you know even nurses in, in hospital saying oh you know what does your husband feel about it like really inappropriate um comments like somehow he wouldn't want to be with me because I can't give him a baby um you're constantly navigating these questions around being a mother or why aren't you a mother you can't escape it and I feel like I don't know what the answer is but I think I would advise somehow like recommending to go and get support during that like after treatment's over that's when would be a good time to go and seek some help go and see a therapist go and 
you have to find your own ways through it and I found it extremely hard and I still do there's still times where I feel extremely triggered there are still times where I cry that I can't have a family there are still times that I you know my friends will be announcing their pregnancies and it's like the most it's so painful you're so happy for them but it's so painful so yeah I don't know what the answer is but I think for me if if there had been some more support after my first lot of treatment was over I think that would have helped me a lot because I do feel like I was sort of left floundering trying to work out how to feel better about this really massive life changing thing that had happened to me I think terminology is really important those microaggressions where people clearly obviously mean well but it's not coming across well I think in healthcare we forget and we get complacent that while someone in front of you is obviously a human being we just forget that things trigger people in different ways I think fertility and things like that it's just it's disappointing to hear and it's not acceptable but at the same time you're not going to be able to change everyone's views and it sounds like you've just found ways to tolerate it or let it sort of fly over you and obviously the triggers with friends and family we have friends who struggle to have children and then in the group someone will slowly have to announce it and it's it can be scary but at the same time I don't know if this resonates with you but they've always said they don't want to be selfish and take that happiness away from their friends absolutely and I I it's so funny it's the same with people who get their stomas reversed there's that absolute gut-wrenching thing that you'll never get that same with the babies but also, like, I genuinely am really happy for people. Like, I don't want other people to suffer just because I have. And I think that's a good thing to remember is, like, it's happiness. I watched this program and it said happiness is amazing and it doesn't have to be yours. It's still amazing, even if it's not yours. So I think, um, yeah, the fertility thing is really dif- difficult. And I really, my heart goes out to anyone who's going through this because it's, it's really painful even when you go for a scan is there any chance you could be pregnant no (laughs) you know there's constant it and like you said earlier it's not we are a patient but this is this might be like our whole life dream to be a mother being taken from us so it's really much more than just being oh, this person's infertile, or this person's had a hysterectomy, this person's had... Like, it goes so far beyond that. And I think the, the the healthcare professionals that I've had that have really been sensitive about that, it's meant so much to me. They don't have to make a thing of it, but they're just very sensitive about it. And they know that it's a big a big deal. I think you've talked quite openly on your social media as well around sex and intimacy with quite a a life-changing, if you want, exactly as you've described, surgery. As you said, your buttocks is inside you, effectively. How has that affected intimacy for you? See, for me, I'm still, um, I guess, working towards that. Um, It's not even just the, the anatomical side of things. When you have your body cut open from front to back and you are you know it's it's different down there but also the recovery was so painful it you feel even though it's consensual you feel like you've been violated so the psychological side of that for me is what I'm working on because 
I don't want anyone touching anything intimate about me, you know, for so long. For me, the psychological side of things has been massive. And also, you know, like feeling good about your feeling sexual. It's really hard after that operation. And when you've got a stoma and like, I've never felt more unsexy, (laughs) to be honest with you. So I'm actually just working on that. What I would say is that intimacy is goes way beyond intercourse. And I would say that me and my partner, like the moments we've shared together are the most intimate moments I've ever had and it has nothing to do with sex. <laughs> so, um, and I'm always aware of saying too much because this is his life as well. Like I don't wanna, you know, this is his personal private life, but I, you know, the issues actually are with me and how I feel about it. Um, but we're a good team, and as I say, like, we've we've never been closer, and the things that we've gone through together, I think being intimate for me is just being, you know, like, completely raw yourself, 100%, you know, that for me is a big part of intimacy. Did you have any therapies, any psychotherapy at all as part of your rehabilitation? No, and so this is this is one thing that I would change about the whole thing. So I, I'm not here to compare or anything like that, but if someone's going through gender reassignment, they have to have quite um, intense, like psychological preparation for that. They have to go through a certain course of like therapy beforehand, and like they have their transition and blah blah blah. Obviously, mine wasn't a transition. But I did have my sex organs cut out of my body. There was no therapy beforehand. I don't know whether the um, pandemic affected that, but I didn't see anyone beforehand. And I didn't see anyone afterwards. And actually my Macmillan nurse put me in touch with someone that would give me one free session because she was working privately. I couldn't afford to go to see a private um, psychosexual therapist. And that really shocked me that you can go through that operation, have no preparation for it psychologically, and then you wake up and although a surgeon is physically reconstructing something, let me tell you, it's not a vagina. It doesn't feel like a vagina. So I feel like this is a big gap in that in that is that you wake up thinking, oh, it's fine, I'm just gonna have a vagina made of something like made of a different part of me it doesn't feel like a vagina and that was a real shock to me and I wasn't prepared for it I wasn't prepared for the implications I wasn't prepared for that like psychological aspect of of that violating feeling you know so um yeah that there was a big gap in that and I'm not blaming anyone for it I just think it's just been completely missed out going through that kind of operation because obviously everyone's focusing on getting rid of the cancer rightly so but there's a person on the other end of that you know I think unfortunately it is something that we see and hear from a lot of cancer patients whereby they do have a lot of emphasis focused on the medical kind of physical attributes of cancer and unfortunately the psychological is almost seen as a after we'll deal with that at a later stage but absolutely you're right that prehabilitation and kind of helping patients prepare for what is coming is so important and even for patients like yourself Natalie who you know were rushed through a pathway 
because of your actual diagnosis I think it, it could still have been integrated um, you know how many of our chemo patients sit hooked up for hours on end just sitting and waiting you know wouldn't it be amazing if they could have some psychotherapy at the same time you know there are opportunities aren't there definitely absolutely and I think you know the mental health side of things is your body like your body learns to adjust the physical side of things for me is probably I don't know it's less of an issue than the psychological things but your body is clever it adapts to the physical changes but your mind I feel like it's really hard just to get left to struggle through and kind of find your way through I was really lucky with my Macmillan nurse and all my teams have been really amazing but even things like the menopause I was 36 I didn't know what it meant no one explained to me what would happen I felt I was thought I was losing the plot I felt so down and I was like oh, this is not me at all and then one of the consultants sat down with me and said I think you're feeling down because you you've been put into you know medically induced menopause but no one told me about that um so yeah I think I I know that I can't fault my care like I can't I just think it's you know like you said it's across the board the mental health side of things I just think there are no resources for them and um that's the one thing I would would have changed about my care is that psychological support So Natalie, famously, you've done lots of patient advocacy, you know, you support other patients through sharing your stories on social media. What drives you to do that? Because, you know, you've been through a lot. And I would imagine that, you know, every time you share your experience, your circumstances, it takes a lot to do that um, emotionally. Why do you do it? What drives you to want to kind of share your experience? I guess I started it to connect with people because I was like the youngest by a long shot in every clinical setting I was in. Um, and I'd seen Bow Babe on Instagram and I just set up a, an account just to kind of connect with people really. I never expected people to follow me or anything like that. It was more like I'm sharing my story and it was quite cathartic as well to, to share what I was doing. And to shine a light on I guess what it was like as a young person getting cancer and then it's kind of grown into something more now in terms of my following I still don't know I don't have a clue <laughs> why why so many people want to follow me but it's lovely it's like a family and whatnot and I do get a lot of people coming to me as so many like so many messages from people asking for advice or just I guess some moral support or to actually is there anything helpful that you can advise me for going through with the surgery um practical things um it's really time consuming and of course there are days where I have to just completely not engage with social media because it's not telling a story (laughs) over and over again it's reliving it's what it, it happened to me it's not a story it's my life 
and sometimes you do feel like when people ask you from I guess the press or the media they ask you to regurgitate your story so that they can essentially make money from it and sometimes you're like this isn't a story this is this is what's happened to me and it's not just as easy as like just repeating it there are feelings behind it and I think it depends what place you're in on that day. Like there are some days where if I'm having a hard day or I'm in pain or I'm feeling sad, which I inevitably will after what's happened, I'm not in a place to be helpful to anyone. I just have to help myself on that day. So that's been a big learning curve. Um, but I think for me, part of going through all this and I have to find a purpose in it like I have to find a reason why I had to go through this it's not a super common thing um and for me it is kind of being there for other people in the small way that I can be I'm not changing anyone's life I'm just hopefully helping someone through one of the worst things that's ever happened to them in a very small way but that helps me find a purpose in all the pain and I have suffered a lot of pain in these last three years uh, it's hard to even explain really it's not a kind of regular cancer journey and this operation isn't one you hear about all the time so for me that's why I do it it's not I don't do it for credit, I don't do it to become famous or to be in the papers, I do it because I, that one person that was there for me and that helped me get through my operation, if I can be that for someone else, then that's, a, that, that's the reason why I had to go through all of this. Thank you for sharing. Do you think that's your legacy? Yeah, but and you know, I'm not going to leave a legacy of a child, my line ends with me, I'm not going to leave, you know, when a lot of my friends have got children and that's their legacy, my legacy has to be something different and I'm not saying it's going to change the world but it might help someone. <laughs> I think you totally underestimate the impact that you get to make Natalie and um, you oh. said you absolutely, you when you when you said I don't think I change anyone's lives. I have to disagree with you because I think actually what you do put out there and the awareness and the conversations that you that you instigate are so important. And actually, if the healthcare service isn't there to support patients in this way, then having peer support and that network could absolutely save someone's life. So don't ever underestimate what you do because it is pretty special. Do you know what as well, I think for, for patients, like, uh, you could, the healthcare professionals I've had are unbelievable, but having someone with lived experience, you, you, I'm glad people don't, I'm glad my doctors and surgeons and everyone don't know what this feels like to have it, that I trust them with my life, I did trust them with my life, but also having someone who genuinely has lived that experience is so, it helps you feel so less alone and, and, and like, I guess not like a monster. You feel, you know, and I, I have felt like a monster at times after my surgery. Um, but I look at my friends who've had it and I'm so proud of them. So yeah, it's helped me to feel proud of myself as well. So Natalie, we've come to the end of the podcast, although I think we could keep you probably for half a day to keep chatting. Um, but you mentioned that as part of some of your kind of advocacy work, you give people practical tips 
So what practical tips would you give to anyone maybe going through the same situation as you? I think a question I get asked all the time is how do you stay so strong and so positive? And my answer would be is I don't and you don't have to either. You being strong and positive isn't jumping around pretending everything's amazing with rainbows and rose petals. For me, being strong and positive is getting up on the days you really don't want to get up and being real, uh, honouring your feelings. You don't have to fake it for anyone. Every single thing that you'll feel, and you will feel every emotion on the spectrum going through cancer, and it's all okay. So I think my biggest advice is when people tell you you're brave and strong and positive... You're brave and strong and positive even on the days where you're crying all day and when you're, you don't want to carry on and you don't want to go to your 29th day of radiation in a row. You are amazing for getting up and doing it. If you do it crying, great. If you do it smiling, great. It's all okay. And I think that's, that's my biggest bit of advice. <laughs> oh, thank you so much, Natalie. And I'm sure anyone listening will definitely take that away with them. So thank you all for listening to Rad Chat. Your hosts today have been myself, Jay McMara and Numan Jolka Anderson. If you're utilising the podcast for CPD purposes, consider the reflective questions posted along with links to resources and literature that we've discussed. To receive your accredited CPD certificate, please complete the Google form linked with the podcast. Our next guest to feature will be Mary Oyledale and she'll be discussing the Charity Cancer Education UK she set up. So thank you all for listening and take care. Join us, RadChat, at Oncology Professional Care, an award-winning event for the whole oncology community, returning to the Excel Centre in London on 23rd to 24th May 2023, a multidisciplinary and multi-professional event which breaks people out of their professional silos by delivering free CPD certified education for all healthcare professionals working in oncology. Joe and I are excited to have steered and influenced the programme as part of the advisory board with support from key organisations such as NHS England, Macmillan Cancer Support, Bopper and more. There are over 130 plus sessions of carefully curated content focused on the whole patient pathway across five dedicated theatres. Keynote speakers, living with and beyond cancer, early diagnosis and screening, clinical excellence in surgery and therapeutics and advanced cancer treatments. There are many reasons to attend, such as discovering cutting-edge developments in cancer treatment, understanding how genomics and personalised medicine can become part of the bigger treatment options, make sense of an evolving policy landscape direct from the National Cancer Team at NHS England with keynote address from Dame Callie Palmer, gain insight into what's happening in early diagnosis and screening to improve early detection of cancers with sessions on fit tests, HPV vaccination and targeted lung health checks. There are some specific focused clinical sessions for 2023 on head and neck cancers, blood cancers, breast cancer and bowel cancer. One of our favourite aspects from RadChat is that you'll be able to hear inspiring patient stories along with their real life experiences of living with and beyond cancer. If that isn't enough, you can join the hands-on hub and enjoy interactive practical sessions to bolster your technical skills, as well as visiting the pod box with us here at RadChat. Visit the event website to find out more and we look forward to seeing you on the 23rd, 24th of May 2023 at London Excel Centre.